Hi, my name's Jillian Kueller. I'm Madison. This is my girlfriend, and today we're going to be doing a podcast over queer history. Queer history! (laughs) So, we're going to start by talking about the fact that queer history really isn't talked about at all. No. Do you have anything to say about that? Well, I feel like in schools, at least, it's not educated about, so it feels like it's more of a new thing, and I feel like that puts on the negative implication that it's all made up that they throw out there on the media, but... (laughs) (laughs) That's okay, yeah. No, I definitely agree, and there's, like, a lot of my sources, like, back that up. One in specifically is um, outhistory.org, which is an organization that's trying to make um, LGBTQ plus history available online to everyone. And in one of their papers, they talk about a quote would be at a time when the gay past is typically ignored in public schools and neglected in major museums, the internet can serve as a crucial public source of this history. Which you're right. Agree. Yeah. yeah. So it's covered up, it's not talked about, but it's been around forever. Like it's not mm-hmm. a new thing and it's not wrong. It's always existed. So um, today we're gonna talk about like specific points in queer history and like specific people and moments and stuff that like people isn't usually talked about. Like I'm sure you know about Stonewall Riots. Yes. Yes. Because mm-hmm. that's like, that's known. Yeah. Yeah. But that was more recent. Mm-hmm. That was exactly yeah yeah, so that's easier to talk about almost like it's still not well talked about, mm-hmm. but it is easier to talk about. Right. And as a queer person, I feel I know more about it than a typical uh, yeah person exactly. yeah than just an average straight public high schooler yeah definitely (laughs) because it's not really talked about in schools at all like I went to Claremore Public School and I know for a (laughs) fact that we didn't really talk about the Stonewall riots yeah yeah and you went to a VIPA school (laughs) and even then like we would have a more diverse group of students where like it's more accepted but we still wouldn't like learn about it like we didn't like our curriculum wasn't anything more surrounding it yeah absolutely So I find that really interesting, and today we're going to go through specific points and talk about the fact that it's not talked about. I mean, that's really what it all comes down to. So in the beginning of LGBTQ plus history, all of this is largely composed of Americans and Europeans because they were the first Mm -hmm. individuals to articulate demands for full political and legal inclusion of LGBT citizens. And they challenged the notion of homosexuality as a criminal or pathological were situated in these regions. So like in the beginning, it was like treated like a disease, you know, Mm -hmm. like there's something wrong with you in your brain because you like somebody of the same sex or somebody that doesn't identify with their assigned sex. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So a lot was Americans and Europeans. And there were absolutely women all in history (laughs) that also um, had same-sex emotional and physical relationships in all historical eras. Right, because where's that talked about? Exactly, (laughs) exactly. It's not talked about really at all because men who engaged in similar intimacies drew far more attention from legal and political authorities. All of these stories typically include cis men, and Mm -hmm. there's some gender queerness and women with 
sexual identities that weren't straight. Mm -hmm. Um, And some of that is in history, but it's not greatly talked about. Mostly it's men, because they were the ones who were most... Yeah. Yeah. In charge and outspoken and... Absolutely, yeah. They were definitely punished for it more, I guess you could say. And that's what one of my sources talks about, is there are consequently more sources about certain aspects of their experiences in some time periods than anything with women or gender queerness. And I try to talk about it a little bit throughout this, but there's just really not a lot of research out there and not a lot of history in it, at least not that I could find. But after World War II, that's when men and women began mobilizing for gay rights. And... Mm -hmm but they didn't do so like in the same organizational context because when they did, tensions along gendered lines often appeared. With the war. With the war? (laughs) war. (laughs) Is that where the... (laughs) That's just when it started, but I mean, it's just like, it was lesbians and gay men, Mm -hmm. and they were both fighting for their rights, but they didn't do it at the same time. Like, they were Mm. doing it together. Okay. It wasn't, like, a movement for gay rights specifically. It was, like... it was... Okay, okay. A movement to support lesbians and a movement to support gay men. Okay, okay. That's more of what it was. I see. Yeah. So, but, I mean, we also need to talk about countries that aren't Americans and Europeans. (laughs) Because, like I said, it's existed forever, everywhere. Like, not a new thing, and it's definitely not... An American-made thing or a European-made thing. Like, it was everywhere. But Western countries, Muslim and Arab societies, hostility to LGBT rights as a means of characterizing these nations as backward or violent. This not only evokes charges of imperialism, but also reduces non-heteronormative Arabs to passive victims. A lot of people, like, are advocating for universal civil rights um, among sexual conduct, But Muslim and Arab societies are kind of, like, it's not safe for them to advocate for that. Like, they don't have that kind of opportunity. Mm -hmm. It's it's not safe, and it gets violent. Calling them, like, a backwards nation or, like, saying that they're not, like, an evolved country is not looking at the, like, bigger picture in the other circumstances. Exactly, exactly. It silences them. Yeah. Rather than publicly promoting gay rights, they call for expanded privacy protections or radical forms of liberty. Mm. So they just want to be able to not let everybody know about it. Like, they want to be able to keep that part to themselves and whoever they choose to share it with, which... They would rather than come out to a wider community, they want to come in. Um, and that means they're sharing their private lives with only a selected few, which makes mm, sense. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because visibility is often dangerous and it's not exactly right. liberating. Right. I mean, you're still going to be there, and now you're just in more danger than you were before. Exactly. Yeah. And the same case is also found in Latin America and Africa. Which I found to be very interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Back to history we go. Um, <laughs> a depiction of same-sex love among the ancient Greeks on a fresco in the tomb of the diver is now in what is now southern Italy and created in approximately 475 BC. Whoa. So that's like really that's, early that's, on. Yeah. Yeah. That's BC. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I mean, what is it? look like it's like a mural mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. like it's really cool and i mean so early on yeah so BC. early on 
two men in a bathtub. <laughs> <laughs> All exactly. right. Go Greek. <laughs> Go Greek. I redact that statement. <laughs> About the time when attitudes towards homosexuality changed was um, the 1700s. So, like, before it, it just existed. Like, mm-hmm. nobody really questioned it. Right. Like, in some cases, it was, like, a form of a... Uh, a, a form of power, mm. almost. Like, mm-hmm. how much power do you have? You would go to, like, bathhouses and stuff like that. It was an accepted thing. Oh. But around the 1700s, with the rise of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, this acceptance morphed into denunciation in many places. Mm. Yeah. Before, though, ancient Indians, Chinese, Egyptians, Greeks, and Romans all tolerated homosexual practices. Before this. Before the 1700s, yeah. Like, back mm. in the good old ancient times, which I found really interesting. That is interesting. That's <laughs> unfortunate. It is. It is. And then in 1533, England's Buggery Act criminalized specific non-procreative sexual acts. And then... Um, for, for everyone? Like, uh, or just, like... <laughs> with... Were they doing like that? Like, <laughs> oh, please, please finish this thought, please. Like, was that law created specifically against homosexuals, or was it also? But that's what did straight people do that kind of stuff back then? I don't know. Like, no, that's a great it had question. To have been so vanilla. <laughs> It, that's a great question. In, in the beginning, it was created and it criminalized heterosexual sodomy. Oh. However, it was later expanded to include, oh, God, the anal penetration of either a man or a woman and the penetrator as well as the receiver. So it later expanded to gay people, but mm-hmm. in the beginning, it was directed at heterosexual people. Well, <laughs> equality. <laughs> Yeah, you tell him. (laughs) (laughs) But this did not affect lesbians, however, and they were rarely prosecuted Mm. because nobody thought that this kind of sex was real. Because they didn't valid. No, 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 no. no. It could never, no. And then... Nothing serious. (laughs) 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 And now we fast forward to colonization. Oh, gosh. Mm -hmm. Here we go. (laughs) So the French, Spanish, Dutch, and English first settled in North America, and virtually all of their colonies outlawed male same-sex sexual activity. So much emphasis on the male. I know. But European sexual norms off-pawn indigenous people as a means of civilizing them. So they would prosecute men and women who defied gender norms and Mm. wouldn't allow them to be anything but heterosexual. Got it. Yeah, so they started... Forcing gender norms. Yes, exactly. During... Very early Colonization. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Yeah, no. One cool story, um, Frederick the Great of Prussia and Mm -hmm. Joseph II of Austria argued individuals should be free to believe, think, and even act as they wish. Which sounds kind of gay to me. For them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Good for them. Yeah. Is this, is, do we know if this is, like, specifically towards gay people? Yeah, towards, like, queer people? That's a great question. Uh, so, Frederick the Great was rumored to have done this possibly because of his own sexual inclinations. Mmm. Okay, speak up, Frederick. <laughs> <laughs> and... This ended anti-sodomy uh, crackdowns on taverns and male brothels in Berlin. 
However, oh. he did not repeal anti-sodomy laws, but oh. he just like <laughs> okay. pulled back on the crackdowns. So like okay. it, it existed and it was existing to a good extent, but it was still illegal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In 1860, the Indian Penal Code. Um, this is a direct quote from it. Mm. Um, whoever voluntarily has carnal intercourse against the order of nature with any man, Whoa. woman, or animal Whoa. shall be punished with imprisonment for life or with imprisonment for a term which may extend to 10 years and shall also be liable to fine. What? Exactly. No way! They grew <laughs> homosexuality <laughs> with bestiality. Oh, they absolutely did. <laughs> Oh, God. Oh, and then in the late 1800s, historical tolerance of male homosexuality in Japan was rapidly eroding. Because, like, for, like, it was tolerated. Mm-hmm. Right. It, it just, it, like, it, it existed. Was, it existed. It was, yeah. On its own thing. But nanshoku, which means the love of males, was a tradition of same-sex intimacy that arose among aristocrats, Buddhist monks, and samurai warriors Whoa. hundreds of years earlier. Like, it had oh. been around for a long time. But the Buddhist, or was it Judaism? It was Buddhist. No, Buddhism no, no, no. was Judaism, not included in Islam that rise and Christianity. Of, the rise of it, that it, is it, what ended it. most tolerance. Okay, okay. I was like, what? That doesn't make sense. <laughs> I see. Mm-hmm. But then the bourgeois men began patronizing male prostitutes in the tea houses of early modern Japan. Damn. Yep, so an end to that. <laughs> yep. Bring it back. <laughs> Bring it All back. All right. In 1901, there was a drag ball <gasps> in Mexico City that was raided by police. Uh, 1901? 1901. A drag ball? Mm-hmm. That raided... Oh, gosh. Yeah. And it was put in newspapers. And you gotta, like, slow down with these titles. They get me excited, <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, oh. Oh, I know, I know. It's hard. It was hard to read through. I mean, whoo. But it was in the newspapers, mm-hmm. and the caption was the 41, and it's a slur that I'm not going to say on here, found at a dance on Calle de la Paz on November 20th, 1901. However, the son-in-law of Mexican President Diaz was rumored to be the 42nd guest oh, at the oh. infamous dance of the 41. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why is that a recent thing coming up, too, with these politicians? I know. That are against, like, queer rights? Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. But there's, like, like pictures of them in drag. Yeah, absolutely. Ooh, okay. So this, we've got a little section here, and, like, all three of these people kind of, like, interlock. Mm -hmm. Um, So this man named Walt Whitman was a writer, and he latched onto the concept of adhesiveness as a way to explain his intense attractions to men in a positive way. Okay. Instead of calling it an attraction to men, though, he called it manly love of comrades. Okay. Which basically gives bromance. Um, yeah, I was <laughs> <laughs> Manly love. Exactly. Of comrades. Mm-hmm. And he did this in poems. However, critics called his work obscene. And mm. however, Whitman was made an international hero to same-sex attracted men seeking to define their sexual identity. Hmm. Okay. One of these people was John Addington Simmons, who was tormented by his feelings for other men. He later had a nervous breakdown. Oh. And then when he recovered, 
he decided to accept his sexuality and he made a deal with his wife oh. that they would have a celibate marriage. Oh. And he would still be able to have discrete sexual relationships with men, but he would also appear to be an ideal husband to the public and an ideal father as well. So many feelings again. I'm like, yay. And then I'm exactly. like, but this poor, this poor, poor guy. Mm -hmm. Simmons began writing to Whitman and he asked what interactions Whitman qualified as adhesiveness and what kind of interactions he had had with men. And they sent letters back and forth for years and Whitman dodged the question for like almost all of those years. And then later on in his life, Simmons wrote a passionate defense of emotional and physical love among men in ancient Greece and claimed that it was in no way effeminate, pathological, or deviant. Mm. However, he would wait until 10 years later to share this work with his friends. And he would share it privately. It didn't go public. It was just to his friends. Mm. Ooh, this one's interesting. And <laughs> like all of these, they, they all interlock. Whitman, Simmons, and now we've got Edith Lee and Havelock Ellis. So they were a very unconventional union. Ellis had mm -hmm. basically no uh, sexual experiences like his whole life. Okay. And Edith Lees was openly lesbian and had several affairs with women with Ellis's knowledge. Mm. And like everybody knew about this. Like she was very open about all of this. Ellis was also very open about all of this. They got married, had a celibate marriage, and Edith Lees was able to be a novelist and women's rights activist. And she was an active intellectual and strong supporter of her husband's work in sexology. Oh. Yeah. Ellis was actually in England's first sexologist. Oh. Um, mm-hmm. And he had an alliance with Simmons, who was the guy that was the fan mm -hmm. of Whitman's work. Um, and he also had a research-based relationship with Edward Carpenter, who we'll get into in a second. Ooh. So, Carpenter, mm -hmm. all of these, it's crazy how they all interconnect. It mm -hmm. was crazy reading the story, and it's crazy having to, like, put it into, like, chronological order, because there really isn't one. They all just kind of, like, met each other and yeah. like we're all just very interested in each other's lives hmm. so carpenter was an openly gay socialist poet and writer and he caught ellis's intellectual interest in homosexuality hmm. so ellis was a straight man heterosexual right but a sexologist Mm -hmm. So he was really so interested be, yeah. in Carpenter. Now, Simmons and Ellis exchanged several letters and agreed to collaborate on a medical study of homosexuality. A medical study? Mm -hmm. And Simmons did this as a literary critic and a gay man because he was hell-bent on disapproving medical claims that homosexuality was a pathology. Mm. He wanted to end the stigma. Stigma? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> he wanted to end the stigma that it was like a disease right because like Cause he's lived not this way and right. he had to accept it himself and he wanted that to be over because like it literally sent him into a nervous breakdown mm -hmm. and however ellis was a doctor and a straight man he was really just interested in, in what homosexuality no. was and they also enlisted carpenter on their project however simmons later died and then ellis chose to continue to do his work on his own on his own yeah he did it on his own. I guess he, I think he found other people to participate, mm. but it really wasn't well documented. And there's like not a lot that you can find about it. And Carpenter went on to write another book of his own, but I'm pretty sure it was... He was like 
well known but like hated during his time and then it wasn't until like the late 20th century that he was actually brought up again and talked Mm. about again and like there's a whole source about him uh iron dukes and naked races edward carpenter's sheffield and lgbtq public history Mm. Um, and it talks about his life which is pretty interesting and it talks about how history is really good (laughs) at covering up queer people and about how every thing in history is like shadowed by this heteronormative lifestyle mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and like it really just creates a different perspective on everything than like what actually happened right and it seems like the heteronormative like quote-unquote lifestyle is yeah. like came from the that rise of from that one period what you said the 1700s mm-hmm. 1700s with the rise of judaism Christianity and Islam. Yeah, it's crazy. And, like, the connections between it all. And even people, like, outside of those religions, though, it still changed, like, all of society. Yeah, absolutely. And, like, it still affects today. Yeah. Which is crazy. Mm -hmm. It was tolerated, and in the 1700s it wasn't, and now we still have to fight for And now we're having a whole battle that we are... Right. Exactly. And like it's it's been around. It is in history. It's not a yes. new thing that we've created. It's insane. The effect that that has all had. And like the effect that it's had on like our education system. Mm-hmm. Like how much For of sure. this did you know before? N- none of this. <laughs> I knew none of this. I knew none of this. Yeah. How much of this did you know before? Not as much as I thought I would. Taking gender and women's studies has definitely, like, broadened my knowledge than before. Because, let's be honest, before I was learning about queer history on TikTok and Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) Because that's all where it's talked about, though. Exactly. There's no other resources, really. Mm -hmm. And if you want to educate yourself, like, you're not really going to go look up an academic study and go check it out. Google Scholar. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. At your, like, high school age, like... Yeah, but this, like, it definitely taught me a lot. Uh, Like, I know it's been around forever. I've known that. Mm -hmm. But, like, learning, like, the specifics, like, what exactly turned it around and what exactly it looked like before. Yeah. Like, I wish there were more, like, trustworthy uh, sources that I could have used for this. But, like, with it being academic, like, there's very few of those. And the ones that they do have, they can't go very in-depth on because, like, all of this stuff is, like, pretty covered up. Yeah. Like, it's not, it's not discussed, mm-hmm. like, in, like, things have been changed throughout history, like, in those history books to make it not look gay, you know, mm-hmm. not be queer. Yeah. And I wish there was, like, more representation of, like, non-binary in- identities or, like, people that just, like, don't, you know, conform. conform. Yeah, conform mm-hmm. to the binary. And because I know that that is definitely a historical thing and, yeah. like, other societies have done it, you know, it's just... It's not talked about. I agree. (laughs) (laughs) I completely agree. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. This is a good little history lesson. Yeah. No, it's really interesting, isn't it? Thank you very much for listening in. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Gilly, for... (laughs) Thank you, Jillian, for for having me as a guest today and educating me. Thank you, Maddie, for coming on here and talking to me about this and giving me your perspective. Of course. (laughs) Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. It doesn't matter if you love him or capital H-I-M. I'm beautiful! (laughs)